Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning hungering and thirsting for your word, for we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we pray, feed us this morning through the reading and the preaching of your word. Prepare our hearts and our minds to receive that word and to respond in faith and in obedience. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text, continuing through Paul's letter to the Colossians. This morning looking at chapter 3, verses verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Page 984 in the Pew Bibles. So Colossians 3, verse 22 through 4.1. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be, ba- will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fair- fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Just last year, a new phrase, a new idea, it went viral. It spread across the internet, across our culture. The idea was quiet quitting. It originated in a TikTok video in March 2022, and it just went wild from there. The idea of quiet quitting is not to actually quit your job, but to do the bare minimum, to put in no more hours, no more effort or enthusiasm than what's absolutely required to keep from getting fired. It's basically to quit in your heart, but still show up, coast along, and take home a paycheck at the end of the week. Gallup soon did a poll and discovered that 50% of Americans could be qualified as quiet quitters, while another 18% were dissatisfied with their work, and only 32% were satisfied and were actively engaged in their work. Some were so shocked by these numbers, they questioned how accurate could this poll be. But if it's true, a stunning 68% of Americans are unhappy with their work to some degree and are just trying to muddle through. And that's particularly striking when you consider most adults spend the majority of their waking hours at work. While quiet quitting, this is a new term, these behaviors of slacking off, coasting, giving minimal effort, these things have been around for a very long time and they're rooted in being dissatisfied with work. And this brings us to the question before us in our text today. How is a Christian to behave in the workplace? And more importantly, what gives meaning to our work? 
what motivates us to work hard in this world. You might think that after Paul opened this chapter with a call to seek the things above, not the things on earth, that would mean we can simply give up on work. But here we see that the exact opposite is the case. Rather, Christ calls his people not to quiet quitting, but to work heartily in his service. Now, the passage before us this morning, it's the second half of the household code in which which we began to work, look at last week. We saw how faith in Christ transforms all of our relationships in the household, husbands and wives, parents and children. And now this morning, Paul addresses masters and slaves, since slaves were part of the household in Paul's days. And while I know none of you today are masters or slaves, the principles laid out here apply to your work in, uh, in the world today. And... Uh, and to the analogous roles, which are different, but still similar in their ways of employer and employee. And even if you are not an employee, you see how verse 23 says, whatever you do, you are to work heartily for the Lord. And so really this passage has application for everyone here today. Whether you work in a nine to five job, or you are a stay at home mom, or you are a teacher, or you are a student, Or you are doing the work of looking for work. Even if you are retired, you still have work to do, even if that's simply the work of of caring for, looking after grandchildren. Or even just the work of prayer. We all have work to do, whatever you do. You are called to work and therefore to work for the Lord. And so this passage speaks to you this morning. Now the key to interpretation that we saw last week It applies here, and in fact, it comes through even more clearly in our passage this morning that the Lord of the house, the one who holds ultimate authority over the Christian household and over the Christian at work, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord who transforms our work. Before we can get into the principles for our work, I think we need to take some time this morning to address what we might see as the elephant in the room. Paul is, of course, here writing to masters and slaves. And I know the ESV translates it bond servants, and it's true that in Roman times, some people, they slowed themselves into slavery. That's the idea behind a bond servant. But they were still, at the end of the day, slaves. In our day, slavery has been outlawed around the world for more than a century. It's universally recognized as a great evil. In our country, we fought a war largely over the issue of slavery. And yet, even 150 years later, we still feel the scars and even some wounds that remain. And while we've come a very long way, racism still remains in many hearts. And so many reading this passage, knowing the history of slavery in the United States, wonder how Paul could tolerate, even for an instant, slavery to continue. Why didn't he call for the immediate release of all slaves? And so to even read this passage, we need to understand several things. First of all, we need to understand the context in which Paul writes and the nature of slavery in ancient Rome. Paul does not directly attack the institution of slavery. What he writes here radically undermines it. And it was ultimately the work of evangelical Christians that led to the abolitionist movement's of the 18th and 19th centuries. So what do we need to know about ancient Roman slavery? First of all, slavery was completely pervasive 
in Paul's day. Estimates are that about a third of all people in the Roman Empire were slaves, perhaps 50% of the population in the capital city of Rome. At one point, there was a proposal before the Roman Senate to make slaves wear distinctive clothing. But this was defeated when they realized that if the slaves could easily see how numerous they were, they would be sure to band together and revolt. Secondly, slavery in ancient Rome, it was different in many ways from the slavery in America that you are likely familiar with. It was not race-based. Slaves came from many different races and ethnicities from all corners of the empire. Third, slaves did all kinds of work. They were often entrusted with highly skilled labor. Next, slaves were often paid a small wage for their labor. And if they saved this up, they could use it to purchase their freedom. Now, historians today don't know exactly how common this was, except that there are many, many records left behind by freedmen. And freed slaves were common enough that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of this opportunity. So while Roman slavery was different in many ways from slavery in the United States, it was still slavery. Slaves had no rights. They were considered property. The master could do whatever he wanted with his slaves, uh, up to and including taking their lives. And so while we read this passage today, and many see it as backwards, it would have been read in Paul's day as absolutely radical, undermining the very foundations of slavery in Paul's day. How is that? Now, if Paul had told slaves, seize your rights, seize your freedom, this would have stirred up strife, it would have led to revolts, it, the tiny minority religion of Christianity had no, power, had no possibility of overthrowing the pervasive system of slavery that was the backbone of the Roman economy. Here you need to remember that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Paul, following his master, he was building a spiritual kingdom, not a worldly one. He was sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. At the same time, what you see here is that when you put your faith in Christ, it not only sets you free from sin and death, it also transforms your whole life. It transforms all your relationships. And the principle that we see in the church back from verse 11 is that the gospel makes no distinction between slave and free. Both are equal in their sin, equal in their need of the Savior, equally, and they equally receive grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see that in the early church, slaves are given complete equality with everyone in the church. And many slaves who occupied the lowest social class in Roman society nevertheless rise to the highest levels of leadership in the church. And this makes perfect sense. For just like quoted Jesus' teaching last week, or I'm actually realizing as I preach, it was two weeks ago, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew chapter 20. So while this passage doesn't immediately overturn the pervasive system of slavery in the Roman Empire, it does plant the seeds for that by showing masters that they themselves are actually slaves of Christ and showing slaves that they serve a higher authority than their earthly master. 
Even more seeds are planted by the letter that Paul sends along with this one, the letter to Philemon, in which he urges him to receive his runaway slave Onesimus back, but receive him not as a slave, but as a beloved brother, to give him the same welcome that he would give to Paul himself. Now those seeds, over time, eventually bear fruit. As Philip Ryken writes, Christianity eventually did become the single greatest force in history for the eradication of slavery. Wherever Christianity has come to dominate a culture, the institution of slavery has been legally eliminated. Of course, there's much more that could be said about slavery in Roman times, but with this introduction, let's now look at our passage, at what principles it has to say here for how Christ transforms how you work and why you work. So Paul first addresses slaves, the equivalent would be those of you today who are employees, those who are working for others, which I imagine is the great majority of you here this morning. But really, these principles, they go beyond that. It applies to all of you who work, including students, homemakers, job searchers, even those of you who are employers. This is really just how you should do your daily work. The separate section for employers focuses on how those you how you treat those you have authority over, but much of what you do, these principles apply to that. Now, the principles here answer the questions of how and why, the manner of your work and the motivation behind your work. But before we look at those two sections, I want to highlight there's one central theme, the hinge upon which the whole passage turns. I've already mentioned it. The theme is here. It's in every verse But it comes out perhaps most clearly at the end of verse 24. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is the key. And in fact, that phrase is is translated here as as a statement. But it could be translated as an imperative, as a command. It might be that Paul is saying here, serve the Lord Christ. That is how you do your work. That is how to find meaning in your work. That is why you do your work. Because Christ is your Savior, he has brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He saw you when you were dead in your sin, and then he raised you up and gave you new and eternal life. Because of all that he has done for you, now you serve him in gratitude. That is why you work. So how? How do you do your work? Paul commands bondservants to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. At the same time, you notice here he's distinguishing very clearly between two masters. You have your earthly master and you have your heavenly master. It's helpful to note here there's one Greek word, the word kurios, and it can be translated master or lord, depending on who it's referring to. And so there's a bit of wordplay here in the original Greek. It doesn't always come through in the English translation. Paul's going back and forth referring to the earthly master and the heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point here is that, yes, you obey. You obey the master, or in your case today, it might be your boss. But why are you doing so? You're doing so for Christ's sake, out of the fear of the Lord. Now, even for a slave in Paul's day, the earthly master does not have absolute authority. That master cannot command you to sin. And of course, a boss today, he has authority only concerning the things of the workplace. And yet within 
the sphere of his or her authority. You are to obey. You are to do so without grumbling or complaining. You are to do so for Christ's sake. Next, we see that you are to do this work not with eye service. Now, what does that mean? It means you don't work and work well only when your boss's eye is upon you. I'm sure you all know how this works. I imagine many of you have done this before. As soon as your boss leaves the room, you start to slack off. You begin to goof off. And whenever he comes back in, he glances your direction. You jump back into action. If you work on a computer, whenever your boss steps into the office, you need to quickly change tabs so he doesn't realize that you are off task. Do you require constant monitoring in order to do your job correctly? Today we live in an age post-COVID of remote work. And so this becomes even more of a problem. The boss is even less present. And so it might be completely up to the employee how diligent you work when you are working from home. And so it's really a question of integrity, is it not? When I was in college, I spent a summer painting houses. And occasionally you'd get up onto the roof of the house And there would be a small section of wall tucked in tight. And really, it wouldn't be visible from the ground. And the temptation was strong either to not paint this spot or just do a quick rush job. Because unless my boss or the homeowner climbed all the way up on the ladder to get into that tight corner, they would never know whether you painted it or not. And so the question is, what do you do when no one is looking? The Christian worker is to give the same level of hard work whether the boss's eye is upon him or not. And the reality here is that the Lord, your true boss, your true master, his eye is always on you. The next aspect of how you are to work is not as a people pleaser. You obey your boss, and so, of course, your boss's opinion will matter to you. But Paul here is getting at your heart. At the end of the day, whose opinion matters the most? Who has your ultimate allegiance? Who are you really seeking to please? This is crucial if your employer asks you to do something that is unethical. For example, he asks you to falsify the sales records. Can you just fudge these numbers a little bit so it'll lower our tax burden? Do you mind if you just lie a little bit to this customer It'll help us to land the sale. In each case, you will have to say that as a believer, you cannot comply. But in these kinds of circumstances, a people pleaser will do anything to not create conflict. Will do anything just to please his boss. But if your heart is intent on pleasing Christ, you will tell your boss you cannot comply because your loyalty is to the Lord. And so it says here, Work not as a people pleaser, but to please the Lord. Next, you are to work with sincerity of heart, or as it could be translated, single-hearted. The idea is that you are not double-minded in your work, not doing one thing and then another, going one direction and then another. This means that as an employee, your boss, you are an employee that your boss can count on. You are reliable. You are diligent. Sincerity should come through in the way you interact with others. This is how a Christian should be known in the workplace. 
And this all lines up with the final description of how you are to work in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Work heartily, work from the heart. Of course, the opposite is not half-heartedly, not giving it minimal effort, not truly, uh, not giving it minimal effort, but truly giving yourself to your work. There's no place for quiet quitting here. Another way of putting this is the common saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Now, your boss may be the one telling you what to do, but the reason you work hard is that you're not really working for your boss. You are serving the Lord. And this is what gives meaning to even the most menial of work, is that you are doing it for the Lord's sake. You're doing it in his service and for his glory. I'm sure many of you have had these kinds of jobs, jobs that are complete drudgery, even if it's just a small aspect of your work. And yet if it is done for the Lord, the Lord receives it as worship. Now, because you are called to work hard, you must also remember the biblical pattern. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Because if you are really giving it your all, it is possible to burn out. And so keeping a proper Sabbath rest on the first day of the week is absolutely necessary. You must rest in order to have strength to work hard the other six days of the week. Now we've seen how you are to work. Let's consider the question why. What is your motivation for working? Now, first, Paul speaks of how your work is given meaning because you have the hope of an inheritance. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Here Paul is saying you are set free from work without a proper recompense, a right reward. Imagine this was particularly important for the slaves he was originally writing to. Because everything was stacked against them. Ever since the fall, when God cursed the ground so that it produced thorns and thistles, he said it will be only by pain, only by the sweat of the brow, that man would eat bread. Now, this was a curse on the ground, but really it's saying that work will no longer produce as great of a reward. More work will yield less results. And then you consider a slave who sometimes received no pay at all, though Roman slaves often did receive this meager salary. They did not have the status of sons. They had absolutely zero chance of receiving an inheritance. And so, to hear this promise, to hear this hope, this is absolutely life-changing. You see, there is a reward to come, something of eternal and, and infinite value. As Paul put it in chapter 1, verse 12, you have a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this applies no matter what your work is. Some of you are privileged to have work that you love, that you find inherently rewarding. Perhaps, perhaps for others of you here today, it's the exact opposite. You deeply dislike your work. But either way, Christ calls you to serve him in the job that he has given you at this time. And he has promised that 
in the end, he will give you a great reward. Now, at the same time, while the inheritance is called a reward, remember that you don't actually earn an inheritance. It's not something you earn because you put in X number of hours of hard work, and so you merit an inheritance. This inheritance, it comes to you by grace. It is a gift that is given to you because Christ gave you his righteousness, because God adopted you, and he has made you his children. He has made you his heirs. And so when you think about it, really, you serve Christ in your work out of gratitude for all that you have received and the promises of all that is still to come. Now, Paul immediately follows this promise of rewards with a warning. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here you have the other side of the coin. Scripture warns you, you're not going to get away with wrongdoing in your work. Because all will stand before Christ on Judgment Day. He is the perfect and impartial judge. Now, interestingly, in the parallel passage in Ephesians, this warning is given to the masters in the section addressed to them. They must treat their workers well. But here it's in the section addressing uh, the slaves. And really, it applies both ways. Either employer or employee can do wrong in the workplace, and both will stand before God and give an account. But the point is that your ultimate accountability is not just what you can get away with before men. But what the Lord sees, what the Lord knows, he is your true master and Lord. Now, there are all kinds of ways that we try to justify negligence in our work. Because my employer mistreats me, I'm not going to serve him well. He is dishonest, so I'm going to be dishonest. He pays me poorly, so I'm going to cut corners. This job doesn't really matter to me. I don't really care about it, so I'm going to give it minimal effort. But it always goes back to the key question, the key theme of our passage, who are you really working for? And that's the central motivation that underpins the whole passage. You are serving the Lord Christ. We've seen this. It comes up in every single verse. In verse 22, You obey your earthly master because you fear the Lord. In verse 23, you work heartily for the Lord, not for men. In verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ, or perhaps better translated as command, serve the Lord Christ. And then in verse 25, the Lord is the one who holds you accountable because you are working for him. It doesn't matter what kind of work you do. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17 In all your work, you are serving Christ, and he is pleased when you serve him well. Now, after taking four verses to address those who work under authority, Paul takes just one verse to address the masters, those who have authority over the work of others. So this applies to employers, it applies to teachers today, any kind of supervisor, middle manager. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And we see the same kind of structure here. It's just simplified. There's one how and one why. The how is that you should treat those uh, who work for you justly and fairly. Now, this, of course, was not always done in Paul's day. Slaves had no rights. 
And so in the minds of many Romans, the concept of justice didn't even apply to them. But here we see the clear teaching of Scripture and how much more today must the Christian employer be the exemplar of justice, of fairness, of integrity in the way he runs his business and the way he interacts with his employees. When you are in a position of authority, everything you do not only has a big impact on others, but also what you do has a a determinative impact on what they see of as your Christian witness, of what they see of as the Lord that you serve. And so a Christian boss or supervisor must be particularly careful in how you treat those who are under you, being careful to reflect the justice and fairness of Christ in everything that you do. Now, the Bible is full of commands concerning just business practices. It teaches us to have fair and equal weights and measures, to pay those who work for you fairly, to pay them on time, to speak truth in all that you do. Now, in many ways, these aren't all that different from what you'll find in a business ethics course today. It's simply that the Christian should excel in all that should go above and beyond. And the employer does this for the same reason as the worker, because you also have a master in heaven, because the boss is not the real boss, but is under authority, is in fact a slave to Christ, bound to his service, bound to serve others for his sake. This is what we call servant leadership. The last shall be first, the greatest among you shall be the slave of all. And so you who have authority must use that authority to serve Christ, to serve those who are under you, under your authority. We've seen this morning how Christ calls us to work in this world, not with eye service, not as people pleasers, with with sincerity, working heartily as for the Lord, not for men. When you serve Christ, whatever you do, this turns your work into a holy calling. It's true that this work is distinct from the worship you give to God on the Lord's day. You cannot forsake your Sabbath rest. You cannot forsake the gathering of the saints and singing his praise and giving him glory. But you are called to serve the Lord with all your heart all week long. And for most of you, that will mean serving him in your daily work. And you do that by giving your heart to hard work in his service and doing it for the glory of God. Your work doesn't have to be something that is glamorous, something that gains the approval of many in this world. You don't have to do work that's going to change the world. If you can find work that you enjoy, work that suits your gifts, work that helps many people, those are all wonderful things. It's good to seek that kind of work. But if right now you feel stuck in a job that doesn't really fit you, you are still called to do that work and to do it for the Lord. I'm sure many of the slaves who read this passage, they felt stuck. And yet, even if they weren't immediately set free from slavery, they found freedom in their hearts because they served the Lord God, who is the God of heaven above and the Lord of all the earth. And so how much more do we find meaning in our work as we do it in the Lord's service today, as we work unto the Lord who has set us free from our sin and who has called us to serve him. 
And so the call of this passage is to work heartily, to serve the Lord and not men. And as you do so, you bring glory to the Lord who has rescued you, who has given you new life, and who has called you to serve him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful gospel that you have called us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and you have given us new life in Christ. And we thank you that we have an eternal hope, an eternal reward in Christ. And we thank you that you have called us to serve you in so many ways in this world. We do pray, Lord, that whatever it is, whatever work you have called us to, you would help us to do that with all our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would make us a witness to our co-workers in the way that we do our work. We pray that you would give us opportunities to speak of the gospel with our words, but also to demonstrate with the way that we do our work, uh, the, the very um, picture of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength um, if we have not been working as we should to repent and to grow in godliness in the way that we work and to be pointing others to Christ in our daily lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.